Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. This is a special edition episode of the podcast, as our president, Peter Lightheart, interviews Jack Kronichevich. Peter will introduce him in just a moment, but Jack is one of our Theopolis Fellows and has a forthcoming book out from Athanasius Press on Sunday and liturgical timekeeping. This year marks the 10th anniversary of our work here at Theopolis, and since our first course in August 2013, we've hosted dozens of classes, which are our intensive and regional courses. We've produced hundreds of podcasts, just like this one, hundreds of videos and articles. We've published a bunch of books, including the first edition of the Theopolis Psalter, We've sponsored the Civitas Group and released our Theopolis app. All of these things that we do, all of this content that we produce, is just a means to fulfill our primary calling, which is to train faithful, courageous, imaginative leaders to revive and reform the church, to expand the mission of the church, and to ultimately transform the world. We've been getting that done. Theopolis students serve in Anglican and CREC and Acts 29 and PCA churches. Our students are preaching sermons, leading worship, teaching at schools, writing books and articles, pursuing doctoral degrees, shepherding congregations, and initiating innovative theopolitan ministry strategies. And we are very grateful to God to see these first fruits of our labor. We want you to come celebrate with us, though. Join us for our third Theopolitan Ministry Conference, which is going to be on July 17th and 18th, and plan to stay on the evening of the 18th for our Trinity Feast, where we're going to celebrate 10 years of our work with food and drink and music and singing and an after-dinner talk by Kelly Capick. Also, we are at the end of our fiscal year financially, so we would also ask you to celebrate by supporting our work financially. We would love to get a head start on the next year, which is the beginning of our next decade. So please consider making a donation at the link in the show notes or at our website, theopolisinstitute.com, so that the next 10 years of our work can be even more fruitful than the past 10. If you give $50 or more a month or $500 a year, you will also be added to our list for The Theopolitan, which is a very robust newsletter from Peter Lightheart that comes out every Friday, which includes exhortations, notes about what he's reading and studying, other essays by him, as well as a new feature this year, which is Notes from Beth Elim, which is an audio file of either a private lecture that he's given or just his musings and things he's thinking about while working at his desk. So if you give it that amount, you will be listed on the Theopolitan as well. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Do know that there were um, some connectivity issues during this interview, so occasionally there are some audio issues that we smoothed out the best we could, but some of those are still present. So we appreciate your patience with that. And with that, here are Peter Lightheart and Jack Fernichevich discussing liturgical timekeeping. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast and to this special episode of the Theopolis Podcast. Uh, instead of our regular podcast where we are going through the book of Deuteronomy, this is a special podcast where we're talking to Jack Fernisevich. Uh, Jack is a deacon in the Anglican Church of North America uh, and preparing for ordination to the Anglican priesthood. He's um, currently teaching, finishing up the school year at the Field School which is a school uh, in the Chicago area, uh, and leaving that post in the next year to be teaching in uh, a writing course at uh, Valparaiso University in Valparaiso, Indiana. And uh, Jack is a graduate of Biola University and also has a master's degree from Neshota House. 
Uh, I met Jack when he was at uh, Biola uh, quite a long time ago, I guess now. And he was also a Theopolis fellow a couple of years ago and uh, finished the fellows program. I'm talking to Jack today about um, a Theopolis explorations volume that he's completed that is in process of being edited, going through the final stages of editing and typesetting. And uh, we hope to have it in print and ready to uh, ready to sell sometime this summer. Uh, the title of that book is Sunday. Subtitle is Keeping Christian Time. And uh, this is a an expansion of work that I, fir- I first heard from Jack when he spoke at our Theopolitan Ministry Conference a number of years ago, uh, and uh, has I thought had some very interesting and unique insights into timekeeping in Scripture and the significance of Sunday against the background of Old Covenant Sabbath. So i uh, very, very happy, Jack, that you were able to complete a, an exploration volume and very much looking forward to getting that out to the public. Uh, but we wanted to have, take some time to talk to you and uh, give them a flavor of the book and what uh, what they might expect when they pick up this book. So it's great to have you. So great to be here. Thanks, Peter. Sure. Why don't you start out by telling a little bit of the background? What what interested you in this topic of Sunday Christian timekeeping? What were the different elements that went into that as a as a subject of concern for you? Yeah. Well, I'll start uh, from an experience I had in college. I was. Um, preparing for final exams in the fall semester. So that would have been December. And I remember really distinctly being invited to two different events on the same night. And one was um, a deep study session for one final. And the other was a lessons and carols service at an Anglican church in town. And I deeply internalized and uh, (laughs) felt really disappointed by the fact that I had to choose. (laughs) I thought, well, I love both these things so well. I love my school. I love my schoolwork. And I love my church, <laughs> and I love reflecting on reflecting on Christmas before Christmas happens. <laughs> and I got mad that uh, <laughs> I was a son of two mothers, as it were, um, the university, um, and beholden to her calendar, then the church, and invited to her calendar. Um, and then I intellectualized from there the question, like, how do you live as a member of more than one thing, uh, bound by more than one calendar? How do you make your choices? What does that say about who you are or who you belong to? And as a kid who was raised in the Roman Catholic Church um, and then went to an Episcopal church that became an Anglican church back in 2008, going to an evangelical college, I had different experiences of expectations for uh, feast days. You know, Easter's a big deal in all those places, but Lent was common for me. Advent was common for me. I knew quite a bit about, you know, the Feast of the Ascension, the Feast of Pentecost, and Saints' Days throughout the year. So I had I had intimations in my head about calendars are real. Um, people keep them, subscribe to them, and order their lives around them. And I got to figure out who I am, who I belong. I think also as a as a new deacon in the Anglican Church, I was thinking, well, we have all these feast days in the Book of Common Prayer. I'm supposed to tell people. Um, some of them are old Catholics. Some of them are old evangelicals. Like, hey, uh, the Feast of Ascension is a Thursday. You might like watch a show with your friends on Thursday. I don't know what you do, but you should also maybe come to church. So that that that, that drove me into, um, hey, what does the Bible say about the calendar that Christians keep? Yeah, I think one of the one of the interesting parts of the book is the way that you 
integrate those two concerns. You're looking at biblical timekeeping on the one hand, and you spend a lot of your time, most of the time in the book doing that. But you also have sections of the book where you're looking at the American civic calendar. The American civic calendar has been used and kind of drawing analogies back and forth across those two across those two methods of timekeeping. Yeah, I think that describing the intersection of our memberships isn't the best place to start every study. But from a self-reflective standpoint, I know I'm a person whose life is ordered by the Bible. I'm an American citizen. American federal holidays determine my work life. Mm-hmm. You know, And I'm also a member of the church, um, partly kind of calling these holidays. And the Bible gives us a lot about Israel's calendar, which is Israel's. We get some education in school about what our holidays mean. Um, we're recording this podcast episode the day after Memorial Day. And actually, book research helped me kind of plunge pretty deep into American traditions and controversies and debates around what Memorial Day means and why its meaning matters. So, yeah, it was fun to start not as one narrow focused scholarly topic, but thinking about collecting all the places I and we belong and try to make sense of them all. You have a chapter where you cite uh, sections of holiday speeches by uh, Frederick Douglass, and yeah. he's doing he's doing he's doing speeches on uh, national American holidays, but uh, those holidays are occasions not just to reflect on why that's a holiday or what happened at the at the moment that that happened, but the holiday becomes kind of a standard of measure. We celebrate this holiday because we have certain uh, national values and priorities. And the holiday itself becomes an occasion when we can measure whether we're living up to that. So that was a, an interesting use, and you can you can see the analogies with uh, with Christian biblical um, celebrations also that uh, those are occasions with not just um, when Israel did pa- celebrate Passover. It's not just we're commemorating what happened centuries before. Yeah, but yeah, we're reinforcing the fact that this is this is our story and this is the measure of who we are. Yeah, that's right. I think that one of the things I didn't expect to do in my study, but ended up doing was come to some kind of uh, definition of a commemorative holiday and the purpose of commemorating it with words specifically. I was thinking back to, again, I'm a deacon in the Anglican church. I'm supposed to, by my vow and by my vocation, in the church through teaching and catechesis, Of course, one of the main ways that happens is through preaching. Uh, Pastors everywhere are preaching on Sundays. And I began to think about how is Sunday um, a commemorative holiday that is spoken on, you know, as if it were a holiday. And I think that Frederick Douglass, whose speeches I knew as a student of American history, as a teacher of American history, uh, I drew on him because I saw him wrestling with holidays in a way that made a lot of sense for me. He asks the question, what's the significance of the 4th of July to a slave? And that helped me see conceptually that the United States instates a holiday, the 4th of July, that celebrates certain ideals that are aspired to, not fully realized, but you know we hope to fully realize them. America values liberty. Is there perfect liberty in America? No, not quite, but you know, year by year, 
people do some things to try to more fully realize what they aspire to. Um, it's, it's corporate goal setting, not just individual. And so Frederick Douglass talks about this future he aspires to. And then I, I heard echoes of that in places like the prophets and Hebrews, where um, the Sabbaths are criticized by prophets, but not canceled. And uh, in Hebrews, it talks about a Sabbath rest remaining for the people of God. And so all of Israel's holidays, I saw doing a similar thing, acknowledging we're people who are shaped by um, significant events that happened in our past that we want to remember and celebrate, while also acknowledging we're not there yet, we're not perfected. Um, and we hope to, you know, become that place that the prophets described possibly, um, a place that's a city, but feels like a garden where there's um, God's righteousness realized. As you, as you say at one point in the book, um, Israel aspires to a world that smells like Eden. Uh, <laughs> it has an Edenic aroma to it, which I um, yeah. in, enjoyed that phrase. So uh, obviously the your starting point for this is the Sabbath uh, and the variety of different sabbatical-like time uh, uh, festivals and, and uh, time frames that exist in the Old Covenant. Uh, which which has the the quality that you're talking about. The Sabbath is not just um, it's a commemoration of creation, as the the first giving of the ten words says. It's a commemoration of Exodus, but it also has this um, kind of embedded narrative, and it has this aspiration included in it for Israel to be a Sabbath keeping people. Yeah, yeah. It's um it's only the beginning of the holiday, and you hope that as Israel, the very childlike nation just taken out of Egypt, which is receiving laws. I mean, I'm a big fan of Leviticus. Um, and I think about all of Leviticus's aspirational laws. It talks about how you would offer up to the Lord uh, the first fruits of your harvest. But the time it's been given, they're on a mountain, none, none of them own land. And so harvest laws don't apply to anybody yet boundary keeping and your neighbors, but because none of them actually have homes, the concept of neighbor is still a future concept. And we know that the the hope for Israel is not just that they'll wander forever, but that they'll inhabit a land, settle it, um, and be fruitful, multiply in it, and fill out the fullness of God's vision for a people who live there. So the Sabbath isn't simply, you know, just chill out on Saturday, um, which they could have done in their transitional phase in the wilderness, but the Sabbath is meant to remain the root of their laws, their holidays, their morality, all those bits. Um, and that's what I saw in my reading. I saw the Sabbath being given kind of in seed form um, in Exodus and in Leviticus, mentioned in Genesis. But the Bible never lets it go. The Bible wants the Sabbath to be embedded and encoded in so many of its other laws and holidays. Yeah, and not just holidays, uh, but it, as you say, laws. So uh, Sabbath patterns that govern the use of land, Sabbath patterns that govern bond servitude and that kind of thing. So you got Sabbath kind of seeping out into the entire social life of Israel. That's right. Yeah, you you mentioned first fruits, and that and that plays a significant role in in what you're doing in the book. And I think that's a that was an interesting, fresh twist on this whole discussion. So mm-hmm. First fruits doesn't doesn't um, isn't isn't very prominent in most discussions of Sabbath keeping or of Sunday. Uh, so how did, how did you how do you see first fruits informing 
a Christian understanding of timekeeping, a Christian understanding of the celebration of Sunday. Yeah. Um, as part of the point of the book. So um, <laughs> at several points in our conversation, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll take liberty to say you should buy the book. Buy I think it's book, pretty good. Yes. That's, that's what this is. For. <laughs> this is just a big, a big blurb, big plug. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was reading commentaries on Leviticus and I mean, reading the, reading the Torah itself and noticing things like the legislation for Passover is given and then Passover celebrated pretty quickly um, because once Yahweh frees Israel from Egypt and, you know, passes over the, the houses with the blood of the lamb, then they have to celebrate and they can commemorate year after year those events. But they can't celebrate a harvest until they have one, and they won't have a harvest until they have land. And the Bible doesn't tell a story of first fruits being celebrated until uh, Joshua chapter 5, when they get to the new land itself. They celebrate Passover, and then shortly after Passover, the next day, actually, they celebrate first fruits. The kicker for me, and this is, I think, one of the surprising premises I didn't expect to stumble upon, was that conceptually for Israel and also time-wise first fruits follows Passover. The Exodus um, story isn't just Israel being led out of a dark place, but also the story of them being led into a new place. I think that I had a seminary professor who used the term Isidus. There's Exodus no, out you. of Isidus into. Do people say that, Peter? Is that a thing or did she just make that up? Uh, I've I've come across it. Okay. It's not common, I don't well, think, but I have come across that language. Well, it's a helpful little yeah. phrase. Uh, yeah. God's people are led out of a place that's not so good and into a place that's significantly better. And so Passover and the harvest festivals balance each other out. Um, they commemorate, you know, the whole the whole exodus of Yahweh. Um, so conceptually, they're right next to each other, and also time wise too. It's right after Passover right after unleavened bread, that the harvest festivals start. First fruits being the first one, Pentecost being second. So then I had to look for that in the New Testament to see, is there also, um, in addition to Jesus saying things like the meek will inherit the earth and replaying the parts of the Old Testament where Israel settles into land, is there any way in which um, New Testament festal time picks up on first fruits as well as this, the Sabbath and the Passover. And the secret is this. This is like the, the main point. I found a, a strain of scholarship that had realized that um, the first day of the week in the gospel narratives is actually the day of first fruits. And so Jesus rises on the feast of first fruits. And if we're commemorating Jesus rising from the dead, there has to be some meaningful way in which the feast of first fruits is related to Jesus' resurrection. And the point isn't like, all right, let's go back to Leviticus 23 and keep that feast. But if the Passover is in our background, if the Sabbath is in our background, then first fruits has to be there too. You should stop there just so you don't give away the whole secret of your book. You want to make sure that you're you're teasing something, putting something out there. Uh, yeah, that, what that, happens that, that, next? You never, <laughs> you'll never believe it. <laughs> uh, the uh, yeah, the the point of uh, the Exodus Isis. I just I've just come across that language. I don't know if it's for the first time, but I've mm -hmm. seen it a number of times when since I've been working on De Deuteronomy, 
uh, for our podcast. Mm-hmm. But it's all it's already there as soon as the Exodus happens. Um, the Song of Moses, you have celebration of the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea. But then it it's already anticipating the terror that this is going to cause among the people of the land. And then so the conquest and the exodus are kind of they almost merged together temporally at that moment. It's as is after it's as if they're happening simultaneously. And that, yeah, that um, that dynamic is going all the way through. So you're saying that 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 Exodus, Isidus dynamic is built into the way the calendar is put together too. That's right. It compresses their whole story. I mean, not just in their songs, but in their in their holiday keeping. They're they're pressed every single year to acknowledge both, to recall how they were brought out of, and to recall how they were brought into, and to praise God, thank Him for both in, in different ways. You, you mentioned uh, looking at looking to how this uh, works itself out in the gospel. A, a chunk of your book is dealing with uh, the gospels, and particularly uh, the gospel of Luke. And uh, you're making the case that Jesus' ministry is the proclamation of the big Sabbath, capital B, capital S, <laughs> big Sabbath, uh, and um, that that influences the way he teaches. It influences his his proclamation, influences actions that uh, his whole ministry is kind of sabbatically shaped. Yeah, we have that one line that's a really helpful line. I'm glad Jesus says it. I'll see if I can get it right. Uh, <laughs> man wasn't made for, oh yeah. <laughs> the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Right. I struggle with those little reversals. Struggle um, with chiasms, are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> I need your help. I struggle <laughs> with chiasms. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Yeah. And study the legislation in the first five books um, and see the Sabbath becoming a way of protecting the rights of the working class and of the slave and the servant, um, giving them rest on the Sabbath day and requiring the people who have charge over them to give them rest on the Sabbath day. Just those simple economic concerns. I realized, oh, yes, the Sabbath is made for man. And in some ways, it's made for the working man. Not to puff myself up too high, but I think that Jesus and I agree, <laughs> or that he reads the Bible <laughs> in a way that I'm reading the Bible too, um, which frustrates some people. I mean, there's all the Sabbath controversy stories where they see Jesus behaving in a certain way that appears to contradict the law. Um, and he's saying, no, um, the Sabbath is bigger than you're saying. Um your over-scrupulous concern with which exact kinds of kinetic activity are prohibited <laughs> is missing some of the bigger point, which is God leads his people into rest. And he, uh, in the way that he speaks to the poor, in the way that he does healing, in the way that he does feed, I think show uh, his vision of the Sabbath. And in the book, I point out some semantic connections I point out how some of Jesus' teachings and some of his words connect with Leviticus 23 and Leviticus 25. He's not doing completely innovative and new work. He's not really contradicting anything except for some of the traditions of his day. He's just uh, tugging on threads that are already there um, and showing how. um, I mean, he's not writing a book about the Sabbath. I'm writing a book about the Sabbath, so I'm focusing on it more. But I really do want to bring attention to how... uh, Sabbath informed his teaching and his behavior are. 
Yeah, it's in Luke. It's particularly prominent because you have that early quotation from Isaiah sixty-one, which uh, refers to the the year, favorable year of the Lord, the jubilee year. Uh, you do a very nice job of showing how that's drawing on some other parts of Isaiah and. Uh, Jesus' quotation actually integrates a couple of different passages that are relevant to your topic, but the other th- part is that you're you you trace out some of the how the Sabbath those Sabbath themes are evident in uh, the Song of Mary at the beginning of the book, in the way that Luke presents the Beatitudes, for example, and then the Sabbath stories as you mentioned that are that are scattered throughout the book, and and readers will just have to wait. You'll never believe how many Sabbath <laughs> stories there are in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, <laughs> It's a shocker. It's a shocker. But uh, yeah, the, so the in a sense, the again, the, the entire ministry of Jesus can be seen as taking place under the rubric, under the umbrella of Sabbath keeping and Sabbath enactment. And, you know, in a sense, as that's the origin of Israel's life. They, they started out with this great release from a non-Sabbath world in Egypt. Uh, into the world of Sabbath that they begin to enjoy at Sinai, and especially when they enter the land. Yes. Mm-hmm. Curious about what um, what you found through your studies that modified your own practice with regard to Sunday. Did your did did you start thinking differently about Sunday? Did you start doing things differently on Sunday? And and if so, why? What's the what's the thread of reasoning that leads you to do something different on the, on the Lord's day? That's a great question. Um, well, coming at that from a few angles, I, I think as a, as a clergyman who has the job of presiding over Lord's day worship, Sunday worship, particularly as an Anglican, I'm fairly well beholden to the liturgical forms of the book of common prayer. So I don't, I'm not in a difficult position of having to invent or pat together a liturgy. I have what's right there. So the first thing that the study did was just reanimate um, the significance of all the things that I'm doing on a Sunday. I developed a larger, more appreciative and biblical imagination for what it means to proclaim the Lord's forgiveness, for the significance of calling people to worship, for the significance of collecting people's offerings and lifting up literal bread and wine and giving thanks for them and, and um, acknowledging them as some kind of first fruits and ourselves as some kind of first fruits. Again, I don't want to give too much away, but if there's any Anglicans listening who really want to <laughs> have a Bible full imagination of what our Anglican liturgy is. Um, I got a big one and <laughs> you could too. Um, personally, I, this is one of the one of the ch- chapter titles of the book. I wanted to put it in there because I loved it so much. I began to see Jesus not just as an example of a practitioner of the Sabbath, but as a hero whose Sabbath actions we commemorate. I think that a lot of the literature on the Sabbath, especially these days, and I wish I could name drop some, but no titles come to mind. These people in my life are reading books about the Sabbath are just questions about like, how do you practice rest or how do you live an unhurried life? And what I appreciate about, appreciate about what they do is that they're calling out the fact that we live in a very hurried world where our time is usually ordered by people who have plans for us. 
and part of Christian discipleship is moving at God's slower and more just speed. So I see a lot of good there, but when it stays on the level of like, how do you do this? I'm still just trying to find practical applications for how do I do things differently or better. And I think that it's given me a more um, imaginative and reflective approach to the Sabbath where my focus is more thinking in the same way or similar way to, to, to the way that Yahweh freed Israel from the kingdom of darkness in Egypt. The Lord Jesus has taken into his household and the literal text of the Sabbath and in Exodus says, you should do no work, you and your children and your servants and your animals. And Jesus isn't just the one who rests himself, but who brings us into his household. My people rest. Um, my people get a break. And so for all the things that matter, I mean, fixing our relationships, being well connected with our families, even like being perfected into the image of the sun, anything that matters both spiritually or materially, Jesus says, um, I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who freed you. And so whatever you're doing, whatever you're, you're tempted to do or work on or have anxiety toward, remember that you've been freed by me already and, and, and brought into my house where the rules are different. Um, and so all the rest you would ordinarily do, whether it's you know, watching TV or playing soccer or making food or what have you. Um, every action is a chance to identify that action as a thing that you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise or a thing that you couldn't have done with the same peace of mind. So I go to church and I worship. Um, and I just try to smile big <laughs> and uh, have this kind of Christian nihilism on Sundays. It says nothing really matters at least nothing that I do. No one needs anything from me. And if anybody thinks they need something from me, they need Jesus <laughs> because whatever they're fretting about or anxious about, they should know too that he's the one who makes it all. <laughs> so let's just hang out. As far as Sunday practice is concerned, one of the, and this is, I think this has effects on how you do it, but also just a, a, a different way of characterizing preaching. Uh, and the, partly from the Frederick, Frederick Douglass examples that you give and other examples like that of speeches on, on uh, civic holidays. Are you thinking of these speeches as, as festive speeches that are, that are intended to uh, mark the occasion as we already talked about, you're using the occasion as a, in some ways as a measure of the life of the people that you're addressing. Uh, and to think about um Preaching as festive speech, that was a very helpful category for me to, to use, uh, to, to think about it, the occasion, the occasion for a sermon, as opposed to a, a Bible study or a Sunday school class, the occasion for a sermon is uh, you're doing it at the, in, in the presence of the, of the Lord's table. You're doing it at the Lord's table. It's table talk. Uh, and uh, it's the occasion of uh, the commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus, and it has all these sabbatical uh, undergirdings that you've that you've unpacked in the book, but uh, and, but thinking about it, the the sermon as being uh, addressed to that occasion, and um, it's festive occasional speech rather than just a teaching teaching opportunity. I, th that's I think a really helpful category to use to think about preaching. Uh, the other thing I want to bring up on that on your last point was what uh, if you if you have any thoughts about the the broader import of the Sabbath in the Old Testament 
you know, Jubilee laws, for example, have you thought through how Jubilee's laws might might affect the way we think about uh, land distribution and land purchases and so on? Uh, we're not in the Holy Land, so um, it wouldn't seem to apply the same way, but it's got to have some kind of import for for our thinking. Jubilee laws or the, the Sabbath laws regarding the the Sabbath years, giving the land rest. People rest during those Sabbath years, too. So you get sabbaticals are not just for uh, academics, but for people who actually work. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh-huh. work. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we could flip that on its head a little bit. I wish that, um, I think, gosh, one of the things that the study did to me is it made me want to be a manager or, oh. or a small business owner or a landowner of some kind where I could turn around and say, hey, y'all, um, <laughs> in a way reminiscent of the way and imitative of the way that the Pentateuch, the prophet and Jesus encode the Sabbath into their management. I would also like to lead people in that way. I'd like to give people that kind of time off um, mm-hmm. and conceive of the work we do together in a way that's not like Pharaoh does, but more like the way that the Lord does. I think there's a lot of, room for this. So, so I, I have a couple pages in the book about the Sabbath year, which is every seven years, and Jubilee, which is every seven sevens of years, as a big and bigger versions of the Sabbath that fill out what it could mean. There's, there's a lot of good stuff on the Jubilee. It's it's hard for me yet to find some normative book that says this is how the US of A should keep the Jubilee <laughs> in our context. Mm-hmm. But I'm just reaching out on my shelf right now. I, I'll show you this in the video, Peter. But um, mm. there's some guys I just met who wrote a book called Ecosystems of Jubilee, Economic Ethics for the Neighborhood. One guy is a pastor in East Harlem. I forget who the other guy is. Um, if they're listening to this, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I see people doing that work of saying, how do these laws in Leviticus um, that are not just about scrupulous law keeping. How do those have to do with our urban or economic life today? I think the biggest insight that I would give for food for thought to people, this actually saw it really helpfully expressed by John Milbank, who doesn't always express things very clearly, but in this case he did. Um, He talked about politics of space as well as politics of time. And said that there's plenty of work to be done in figuring out how politics of time works into our economic imaginations. And I think the biggest discrepancy that I see between like the Jubilee laws and the world that I happen to live in is that I think we have a an idea in the world today about perpetual ownership. Uh, and once the thing belongs to you, it belongs to you forever. Whereas in the Jubilee which we, we just can't apply one-to-one because we don't happen to have a place that was very directly and covenantally given to us as land by Yahweh. But thinking about um, part of what made Israel just, or at least just double, was there's an idea that if you were poor and had to give up your land, there was a way that you could have it back in the future. Mm-hmm. And we don't have a clear encoded law for how to give things back after a time. When things are foreclosed upon uh, or bought up, the people who buy them up keep them forever. Mm-hmm. And that never changes. Um, it's just, it's curious that that's not how the Pentateuch works. Um, 
there are cycles where you have a thing for a time, then you let your people go, um, then you let your places go, and you, in some ways, reset. Um, right. The, I mean, the Jubilee is a has kind of a paradoxical character in that regard because it's somebody who acquires property between Jubilees is going to have to give it back. But in yeah. some sense, the whole point of Jubilee is that once the original inhabitants of a particular part of the land have it, it is theirs in perpetuity. So it's the people who come in between that that, that give it up later, but that's all to give it back to the original in the, yeah. the original settlers. Yeah. I mean, the, p- part of the, I mean, the, what you make of the Jubilee in part is just the proclamation of release and forgiveness that Jesus makes in the, uh, in Luke and that uh, in announcing the big Sabbath and enacting the big Sabbath um, this, you know, the quotation from Isaiah 61, it's a, it's a return from exile context. And it is a, a kind of a fairly literal application of, uh, in Isaiah. It's a fairly literal application of the Jubilee because those who in, originally inherited the land are now returning to it. I mean, you say Jesus is, is proclaiming something similar. You have, um, um, it's, it's going to have concrete ac- economic implications for people within Israel who will re-inherit land that they've been deprived of. Uh, but there's also the more global thing that those who've been displaced from the good the good gifts of God are now being brought back into that. Yeah. So what, what my book doesn't do is provide very specific concrete in, insight and in how to change legislation or policy. Yeah. But... I think the valuable thing, especially for people whose work is the church, um, this is what makes it a good pastor book, is that it asserts that as in the Old Testament, so in the New Testament, do we hear stories, narratives that um, encourage us toward and give us both holidays and a kind of like ethical, moral vision that are both connected. We don't just have moral principles worship on Sunday, but we have a commemorative feast um, called Sunday, called the Lord's Day, that draws from Passover and Sabbath and first fruits and fuels, or at least it could fuel, our moral vision for the week uh, and for the year. And I, I don't know, maybe for the seven or 49 years, if, if we're, <laughs> we're going to think about seasons of life in, in, um, in big chunks like that. But it's not, you know, it's it's not so bland as we belong to God so that we do what he says. We follow his rules because we worship him, although that's not untrue. That's very true. But we reflect meaningfully on what it means to be brought out of a place and brought into a place. And just the way that Jesus talks about forgiveness, the last part of the book I wrote was his dedication, and I dedicated it to the... Episcopal, um, and then what became an Anglican church that raised me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think back to um, the Sundays that they spent. Um, We had an 8 a.m. service that some of the kids served at. I was an acolyte. I played the piano sometimes. And then a 10 a.m. service that we sat at with our families. And then coffee hour was not just coffee. It was like a, <laughs> it was a, it was a time for people to shine. There were like four long eight foot tables full with enough food that it basically counted as a lunch. And our family treated it that way. In this parish hall with kids zipping around, um, 
sometimes getting into getting into trouble, um, but getting into trouble at church. A brief hiatus at home to change out of our clothes and then head straight to McNear Park um, where there was volleyball happening. Um, some of our pastor's kids had gone to England and married English people. And so they came back and taught us cricket. Soccer happened. There were picnic blankets everywhere. And eventually someone would, um, you know, with a loud voice say, hey, I'm getting eight Costco pizzas. I have six boxes of wine. My house tonight. And then, you know, we go to that person's house. The kids would all play their tag or hide and seek or video games. We'd stay till, you know, way late into the night. And without ever being, and I, I can't remember a single explicit lesson I was taught about um, what Sunday meant. But I just knew it was the Lord's day. It was the church's day. Um, and it was that that way of life that I think, I mean, to use my school words again, gave me a high ecclesiology. Mm. It really made a practical, formative, heart-level argument that um, the church matters, Sunday matters. This is a special thing. Um, so a lot of what the book is, is um, um, an older me. I'm not that old. I'm I'm 30. I shouldn't say older. Yeah, you're very um, young. An older me. <laughs> very, very young. I was very younger back in the day. Yeah. And this, <laughs> this book is partly me working out the significance of how I was raised as a kid. Um, yeah. And I think that the fine points about how exactly we keep Sunday um, uh, are secondary to that we keep it at at all. Hmm. One of the, one of the intrig intriguing things about what you just described, you say you don't remember people saying we're doing this because this is how we keep Sunday. There's a kind of explicit teaching. Uh, you can imagine that there are people in churches where the Sabbath is very much a major topic of discussion whose oh, experience yeah. of the Sabbath is polar opposite of what you've just described. Yeah, yeah. I think it's common in the in the world that the gospel stories tell stories about. Um, the Sabbath is a very um, regulated day, very reflected upon. I would recommend people for whom that's their experience to read this book also. Um, mm -hmm. I try to present a vision of Jesus who is the word who fulfills the scriptures and embodies their precepts in the face of those who are unable to disentangle themselves from scrupulous traditions. Um, so I think there's some good negotiation of the biblical texts and good interaction with the stories of Jesus's Sabbath controversy. And then my final chapter is my chapter of some practical outworkings of, of this. I think that my study has clarified for me some of the, some of the heart of Sabbath keeping. And I'll just give one the Sabbath in the Old Testament, I've said this in kind of a roundabout way, um, the Sabbath is a command addressed explicitly to a person who is a head of a household, mm -hmm. who is managing the work load and work life of his children, his servants, and his land. And the command to him isn't simply, you do no work, but you ensure the liberty of those under your care, that you free them from their work as well. And so Pharaoh is the first archetypal breaker of the Sabbath. He won't give people rest. 
and look what happened to him. <laughs> we should <laughs> we should do better. And we do that partially through practicing rest ourselves, but also partially through proclaiming the Lord's liberty to others, and even in some ways to ourselves, saying, go, or you are released. We've been talking to Jack Fernisevich. Jack is the author of Sunday, uh, Keeping Christian Time, which is a Theopolis Explorations volume that will be available in the next couple of months. Uh, thanks, Jack, for the conversation. Thank you for the book, and I uh, do highly recommend it. It's a it's an excellent uh, work of biblical theology, excellent work about uh, as you think through both the liturgical and the practical social dimensions of the Sabbath and, and Sunday. Uh, thanks for joining us, Jack, and uh, God's blessings on you. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.